All right. Thank you, Dane. Amen. Well, good morning. Great to see you. Hey, we're going to go ahead and dismiss kids to Children's Church. So grade six and down, we've got a special Children's Church planned for you. And you guys can be dismissed. The rest of you, hopefully you received some message notes when you came in. Uh, You're going to want to grab those and uh, keep a Bible handy. We are going to be in Acts chapter 12 here pretty soon. Um, I want to welcome you to what is uh, the, the, the final message in kind of the first half of our study of the book of Acts. And so we're going to get to chapter 12, which kind of wraps up a, a big section of Acts. We're actually going to take a little break and come back to it uh, later in the year and, and after Easter. Um, but we're really excited um, to do that. But before we jump into today's message, um, I wanted you to hear a little bit from uh, our church's newest missionary. So uh, Chio Tesaro is serving uh, full-time with Youth with a Mission down in Ensenada, Mexico. And if you knew Chio or knew his story, what I just said even three years ago would have seemed completely impossible to you. And yet God has not only got a hold of this young man, but is bringing healing in his life, but is also just bringing great purpose as he serves him as a missionary. And I wanted you to hear some of Chio's story. So let's take a look at that. Hi, my name is Chio, and this is my story. Five years ago, my life was hopeless. It was in shambles. Um, I was a complete mess, addicted to methamphetamine, living on the streets, in and out of jail, and um, just living in complete darkness. Um, Like I was a literal slave to the sin. And um, Steve Plath started reaching out to me. He had met my parents at um, at a fundraiser dinner for Teen Challenge. He started coming around, picking me up, and just taking me out for food and feeding me, spending time with me and just asking me questions that really started making me think about like where my life was, where my life was going, and um, about the one who could change all that for me, and that was Jesus. God has moved in so many just incredible ways, like ways that I thought he never could, ways that I thought he never would. Um, I have like a peace and a joy today that is that surpasses all understanding. Um, I have a home church in First Baptist who's been so so accepting and so loving, um, and just people who've come alongside me in every single way to just like accept me and love me and support me and allow me to do that same thing for them, like um, the Gaither family and the the high school youth group opportunities that I've been so blessed to be a part of. Um, I mean, Hume Lake last year was literally a game changer for me, a 27-year-old who, you know, is a camp counselor, but learning just as much as the kids, just from them and from the camp. Um, And I'm a missionary today. Like, God has called me full into into missions full time. And um, this is something I never thought that I'd be doing: is living a life, a clean and sober life, at three years. as a, as a totally devout Christian missionary um, serving Jesus in Mexico and at home. For the last two months, I've been serving with YWAM, which is an organization that trains missionaries to serve all over the world. One particular story that meant so much to me, um, we had a kid from our team whose name was Octavio, and he had a similar story to mine. He was at this school in order to try to change his life. So we connected right away, me and him clicked right away, um, just in being able to kind of have this understanding of where each other had come from. 
And about four weeks into the mission trip, when we got to Guadalajara, which is where he was from, he actually ended up leaving the team and um, going back to his home and his old ways. Um, and so in the next couple of weeks, we were actually able to spend the week with him and his family, um, specifically his mother. And it was just such an amazing encouragement for God to like use my story to encourage not only uh, Octavio, who is still struggling with drugs and just um, battling that darkness, but to also bring me to a place where I was able to love on his mother and just encourage her and support her in the same way that I would have wanted somebody to do that for my mom when I was uh, in my addiction. And it meant so much to me um, to be able to come alongside Octavio's mom in that way because I knew that um, when my mom was going through it with me, so many people from First Baptist um, had come alongside her and were praying for me and were praying for her as well. So it just meant so much that I, not only that my story could be used, um, you know, to, to encourage a mother, but also for myself to be used to encourage her in that way and just be like a living, breathing um, example of, of hope for her son who is in the same struggle. And so for Jesus to present me with that opportunity to go back, to come alongside her was, was probably my favorite um, just God moment of the entire outreach. Isn't that great? Yeah, we should applaud for that. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I never get tired of the power of God to transform a life. That's just um, amazing. And to see the way that God is using Chio now uh, down in Mexico is just um, incredible as he begins uh, his journey as a full-time missionary. And yet today, what I want to focus on is something that he mentions briefly, but I'm not sure any of us can really grasp in Chio's story and in so many others just how hugely significant this part of the story is. And that is the power of the earnest prayer that was offered on his behalf. You see, he was imprisoned, imprisoned to drugs and to a destructive lifestyle, and yet the faithful prayer, beginning with his mom and his parents and his grandparents, uh, but then surrounded by so many others that, that literally came and entered into the battle on Chio's behalf, begging God to set him free from the prison that he was in. And I know that many of you prayed for Chio before you even knew him, and we see that power um, in his life. And what I want to talk about today is the power of a praying church, the power of a praying church. Because as we study kind of the ever advancing mission of the early Christians in the gospel or in the book of Acts, we've seen time and time again uh, the way the gospel advances and prayer is at the heart of that. And prayer especially is at the heart of today's uh, chapter. Uh, and and uh, throughout this study, we've kind of asked the question, as we we've studied Acts and we've seen the amazing things that God has done. We said, could this ever happen again? Could this happen in our time? And the answer is yes, but only as it is 
connected to a deep dependence upon God and to the power of God through prayer and specifically through a praying church and through praying churches. There's a great quote from uh, an old missionary, kind of a pioneer missionary uh, into Africa in the late 1800s. And he said this, he said, the man who mobilizes the Christian church to pray will make the greatest contribution to world evangelization in history. So in other words, your church wants to make a difference. It's not how many missionaries you send. It's not how much money you give. It's the prayer that really makes the greatest difference. Similar quote uh, from a guy by the name of Samuel Chadwick, who wrote in his book, The Path of Prayer, said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless works, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. Prayer brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. And so today in Acts chapter 12, we're going to come to literally, I think, one of the, the great miracles, one of the best miracles, in my opinion, in all of the book of Acts. It plays a big part in advancing uh, the gospel as we finish this first section of Acts and kind of propel it onto the next section of uh, the gospel going uh, global. And what we're going to see is this miracle is not unlocked because of, you know, the courage and the greatness of one of the, the famous apostles, but it's really unlocked through the predominantly nameless people that are a part of the regular church that offer up earnest prayers for God um, to move. And so we are going to study that today. Now I know I just want to call out right at the beginning when we talk about prayer, you hear, hey, the preacher is going to preach about prayer. Um, There's probably a a few different responses that most of us kind of automatically have. And one of them is kind of a sense of of guilt. Because if you are a Christian, and even if you're not a a Christian, you're still kind of checking things out, you probably have this sense that prayer is important and that prayer is powerful. Um, And you would not be alone in that. And and yet you also kind of look at your life and you think, oh, I'm falling short of where I want to be. And so we feel some kind of guilt about that. And the truth is the statistics kind of agree with that. So there's a study that was done actually a few years ago, but I think at least it it still holds uh, true, at least in large part. Um, Did you know that 85% of American adults, 85%, eight and a half out of every 10, believe in the importance of prayer? That's a big number. They say, but that many say, yeah, prayer is a big deal. I believe in it. I believe in its importance. 67%, so two-thirds of American adults say they pray at least once a week. Another 10% say they pray at least once a month. Only 15% of Americans say they never pray. And I love this part. A quarter, do you believe 25% of those who self-identify as uh, spiritually skeptical or as atheists still say that they pray? on occasion, which isn't that great because it's like, I don't believe in God, but just in case, I'm going to offer a prayer to this God that I don't believe in. Don't tell me I believe in. But to me, it just shows us that, that God puts something in our heart, eternity in our heart, that longs for something bigger, something um, more. And so we see all these people that, that say prayer is so important, and yet this state, same study shows that uh, overwhelmingly among Christian people, these are what they call devout or committed Christians, people who um, uh, believe in the importance of prayer, uh, uh, believe in the Bible, attend church regularly, uh, give faithfully, still say they spend less than uh, about eight minutes a day in prayer. 
And many say they could go weeks or even, or days or even weeks without talking to God. And so a lot of us know that and feel a sense of guilt, like I want to, I want to be a better prayer. I want to pray more. A second response that, let's just be honest, many of us feel sometimes when you hear a message like this is, is skepticism. You might not voice it out loud, especially at church, but you know the deal, right? You know that there are times that you pray for someone or pray for something and you see God's clear answer. In the early service, uh, Jerry Springer, who's been battling cancer for a number of months, called me earlier this week and said, Glenn, I, I went to the doctor this week. They gave me a clean bill of health. They couldn't find the cancer anywhere. She said, the doctor said it's like magic. And we know that people had prayed for that. And yet as awesome as that is, we also know that sometimes we pray for things and the cancer doesn't go away or it's not there. Or or sometimes, if you're honest, we forget to pray, but God still gives kind of the answer that we would have expected. And and so we don't maybe necessarily understand how how it all works. And yet the reality is, is I don't understand how an airplane works. I don't know how it gets up in the air and I still get on it to take me where I need it to go. But here's the thing, Uh, wherever you are on that spectrum, it's my hope today and really my prayer that the Holy Spirit would work in these next 20 minutes or so in your life and in my life to make us people of of deeper prayer. That I, we would, we would just grow in that dependence upon God and that eagerness to ask God, our Heavenly Father, in prayer. It's also my deep prayer that as a church, that we would become the kind of people that recognize that anything good that's going to come out of of this body of Christ is going to happen because of the power of God and us turning to him through the power of prayer. So as I said, our story today is Acts chapter 12, but don't turn there yet. Because before we get there, we need to lay a little foundation um, from Luke chapter 11. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, and I encourage you to do that, um, Luke chapter 11 just a reminder that the, the, the Acts of the Apostles that we're studying are written by Luke, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. So Luke and Acts really are kind of like sequel or companion uh, works. And one of the things that I find just so fascinating is you see this in several places, that when Jesus teaches something in the Gospel of Luke, it's a certain behavior or a certain doctrine or something like that, you see that doctrine or that behavior kind of come up again and lived out by the, the church, the Spirit-filled church in the book of Acts. And that's totally true. about prayer. What Jesus teaches about prayer, the church puts into practice when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So in Luke chapter 11, uh, the disciples uh, come to Jesus and they've been following him for a little bit now. They've seen what he offers. And so they come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd seen Jesus do some of the things that I'd seen him do, I probably would have said, Lord, teach me how to do those miracles. You know, teach me how to cast out those demons. Lord, teach me to preach the way you preach. But they come and they've seen his connection to his heavenly father. So their first question is, Lord, teach us to pray. And that's where Jesus famously answers them by giving them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is this beautiful and quite simple, if you really study it, quite simple way that we can approach God and bring our our requests and our needs to God. And the Lord's Prayer is rooted in the very opening words, kind of the opening line, which is, Our Father. 
our Father which art in heaven. And the point that Jesus is making is that we can approach God as a loving heavenly Father. Now what's interesting about this, in the Old Testament, God's character hasn't changed. God is a loving Father in the Old Testament. But more often he's presented as creator. He's presented as deliverer. He's presented as king. He's presented as judge. Sometimes he's presented as father of the nation. But Jesus says, no, you actually have this relationship like a loving heavenly Father. And some of us get that and you you know understand that some of us maybe didn't have the greatest relationship with your dad and so you don't can't wrap that around your head but what I'm saying is is Jesus teaches us to approach God not necessarily like your father but like a perfect heavenly father you know one of the things that that um that I've had for many many years um when I'm close to God and praying in a in a a good way, is kind of a, an image, kind of, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a vision, but kind of an image that I have that I pray, where, when I pray, of kind of crawling up onto my Heavenly Father's lap. And I've had the same image for years. I, I couldn't tell you what God looks like in this image. I couldn't even tell you his face or those kind of things, but there's this great sense that I've crawled up onto my Heavenly Father's lap, and there I feel secure, I feel safe. I feel like there's someone who not only has my best interest in mind, but controls those things. And so that's the foundation of the Lord's Prayer. It begins with this idea that he is our Father. After that, in Luke 11, as Jesus is still teaching them to pray, then he gives this story. And this story is about, suppose you have a friend that comes and knocks on your door late at night. And you're already in bed. The kids are in bed. Everything's all tied up. uh, And and this guy is asking for some bread. Um, And you think, I'm not going to do it. But he keeps on knocking and he keeps on knocking. And a little bit in part because of your friend. But more than that, because of his persistence, you get up and you give him what he needs. You actually give him abundantly more um, than what he needs. And the point that Jesus is making is specifically called out in verse 9 of Luke 11, and it says this. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And maybe you've heard before that the verb tenses that are here emphasize kind of the continuous ongoing action of those, those, those verbs. So in other words, it's, you don't just knock a little bit. You knock and you keep on knocking. And you ask and you keep on asking and you seek and you keep on seeking. And the point that Jesus is making is to pray and to not give up. To keep on praying. And, and you come to your Abba, your Daddy, and you ask and you ask and you ask. Um, and then Jesus kind of ends this section of teaching in a Luke 11 by saying this. He says, by the way, when you think about your heavenly father, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? No. If you, even though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So again, Jesus is emphasizing how good your heavenly father is. So, To sum up Jesus' teaching in Luke 11, you actually have a very similar teaching minus the Lord's Prayer in Luke 18. This is what he says. He says, when you come to God, you don't have to come with some fancy, flowery word. You don't have to be, you know, praying like the Pharisees. Come with a beautiful, come with a simple prayer like the Lord's Prayer, but come persistently. Pray and not give up because you have a good Father who is faithful and wants to answer your prayers. And years later, boy, were his disciples going to need that teaching on prayer. 
Because when you turn ahead now to uh, Acts chapter 12, like I said, a number of years have, have passed now. And if you've been with us through this journey through Acts, you know that by now the church is starting to face a lot of persecution. They've had a lot of growth, a lot of great things, but now they're starting to see that the church is persecuted. Some have already been killed, some have been thrown in jail. And at this time in Jerusalem, they're beginning to have the, uh, a famine that's going to come across the area. And there's a guy who's in charge by the name of Herod, King Herod. But don't get this King Herod mistaken with Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the, the, the first Herod that we read about who kills all the, the babies around Bethlehem when Jesus is born. Remember that guy? That's Herod the Great, they called him. Um, the Herod in Acts 12 is not uh, Herod Antipas, who's the one who uh, comes after he's Herod the Great's son and kills John the Baptist, cuts his head off. This is Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod, who at this point in Acts chapter 12 takes up kind of the family business of being a tyrant and especially showing hatred and violence towards God's people. And that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 12 when it says this, it was about this time that King Herod, that's the King Herod we're talking about here, arrested some who belonged to the church and he intended to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So James, the brother of John, is one of the main leaders in the church at this time. Uh, he and John, remember Jesus called them the sons of, of thunder. They were a part of the inner circle with Jesus. He had the 12 disciples, but there were the three, Peter, James, and John, that he would often take kind of behind the scenes and, and give them kind of a behind the scene glimpse. So in other words, this is one of, the, one of the, the big leaders in the church. And Herod not only takes him into prison, but he, he kills him. He has him killed by the sword, which likely means that he had his head uh, cut off. And then in verse 3 it says, and when Herod saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, so in other words, the Jews were like, that's great, kill them all. He proceeded to seize Peter also. Because if we got James and he's one of the three, I should probably get Peter too. And, and this happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. So I guess they were pretty worried about Peter in jail because Peter is a Galilean fisherman who's become a preacher and now he's being guarded by 16 armed Roman guards, right? Four, four guards of four men each, all armed, all guarding Peter. Seems a little extreme for a Galilean fisherman to me, but that's what they're doing. So Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison. But what was the church doing? The church, how are they praying? The church was earnestly praying for God to God for him. And that phrase, earnestly praying, speaks about a persistent and a passionate prayer. You see, Jesus had taught them to pray and to not give up and to knock and to keep on knocking. And that's what we see the church doing here all these years later on Peter's behalf. Verse 6 says, The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Now, uh, you have to kind of picture how desperate this moment was for Peter, right? Peter had seen his friend James already put to death with the sword, so he knew that 
Herod wasn't joking around. This was not an empty threat. He was being guarded by these 16 guards. They were only a day or so away from when they were going to bring him out and, and put him on trial. Everything was kind of working against him. He's chained specifically between these two guards. And what is Peter doing at this time? Did you catch that? He's sleeping. Is that surprising to anybody else? Can you even imagine? I think of myself of like the little worries that wake me up in the middle of the night and then keep you up, right? Worrying, worrying, and worrying about this little thing. Here is Peter who faces literally his life the next day and he's like sawing logs chained between these two guards. And I think what in the world gets into someone like that? And I think where did Peter learn that? And as I thought a little bit about that, I thought, I I wonder if Peter could think back to the time when he and the disciples were out on the the Sea of Galilee that time and the the windstorm came up and they were all panicked. They were desperate. They thought that they were going to die on the spot. And Jesus is there in the boat with them. And what is Jesus doing in the boat on that day? He's sleeping and they wake him up and say, save us, save us. And that's when Peter or Jesus speaks to the wind and he says, peace, be still. But I just wonder if Peter remembered that that that's what the kind of peace that you can have when you have that sort of relationship with your heavenly father. Not that all the bad stuff goes away, not that the bad things don't happen, but there's this sense that my heavenly father controls my life and holds me in his hands and so I can rest. And I can sleep. And he'd seen Jesus do this. And he'd said, Lord, teach me to pray. And Jesus says, well, pray to our father. And Peter is fast asleep in the middle of the prison. Verse 7 goes on and it says this. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, the angel said. The angel smacks him. Says, wake up. Quick, get up. And the chains fell off. Peter's wrist. And I don't know about you, but in my Bible, I've circled, kind of underlined that phrase, the chains fell off, because those were some of the most hopeful words in all of the Bible to me. The chains fell off. And the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. So I don't know if Peter was just kind of groggy when he woke up or, you know, just didn't believe everything yet. But he's like, I think I'm having a vision um, until verse 10 says they passed through the first guard and the second guard and they came to the iron gate leading to the city and it opened for them by itself. I picture it like the the door at the grocery store just kind of opened up and out they went through it. And they walked the length of one street. Suddenly the angel left him. And then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything that the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. That's kind of an interesting fact there. Who is this Mary? There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. It's kind of hard to keep track of who they all are. And this one is Mary, the mother of John Mark. And apparently she was hosting a little house church there in her house. I assume that she was probably a widow because this is Mary's house. The house is not listed in her husband name. But I think one of the reasons Luke includes this little kind of very just 
matter-of-fact detail is he wanted us to know that this is the kind of stuff that was happening all around Jerusalem at this point. There were all of these house churches and small groups and, and, and Christian groups that were gathering together for the fellowship and for seeing God work among them. And at this time, all around the city of Jerusalem, these people were gathered together and they were praying for Peter's release, earnestly praying for Peter on this occasion. And so Peter knocked on the door of the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda, who I love, came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, so overjoyed that she ran back without even opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her when she kept insisting that it was so. They said it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking. Where have we heard that before? He kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, another leader in Jerusalem, tell James how the other brothers and, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Isn't that an amazing story? And, and as I said, I think one of the great miracles in the book of Acts. And it kind of propels the church forward as they move into this next section of taking uh, the gospel now out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And here's what you need to know. It was all unleashed by the power of a praying church. The church had gathered together to earnestly pray. And so in our remaining just few minutes that we have together, here's what I want to do. I want to make just a few short observations from this text, I hope, about earnest prayer. What do we learn about what earnest prayer um, is? You've got to see the way uh, Acts chapter 12 finishes. And then I'm going to ask you and me to kind of put this into practice uh, right now before we even um, leave today. So let's talk a little bit about earnest prayer. Three things that I see about earnest prayer in this passage. And the first one is this. Earnest prayer is a desperate prayer. It's a desperate prayer. Look at all of the details that Luke includes. We kind of went over some of these, but, but look of all of the things kind of working against Peter, right? We said that James had already been killed, and, and Herod had received accolades for that. The, the people liked that Herod had done this. That's exactly the kind of stuff that fed a leader like Herod's ego, and, and so that didn't bode well um, for Peter. Peter was being guarded by this ridiculous show of force. We talked about that. They had a plan that as soon as the Passover was over, so just a couple days. They were going to execute him as well. Peter was in chains. The point is, from a human perspective, there was very little that Peter had going for him at this point. These were desperate times. And it's out of these desperate times that comes this earnest or this desperate prayer when we have nowhere else to turn but to God. And it's that earnest or that desperate prayer that breaks the chains that were holding Peter captive. And it was the desperate prayers of Chio's mom and the people that came alongside that broke the chains that held him captive. And I guess one of my worries about not just this story, but sometimes in the book of Acts, these these things happen and you think, I'm kind of removed from that. You know, I likely am never going to be chained up in prison for my faith. Who knows? But, you know, it doesn't seem like that that's going to happen in my life. And so that's kind of in the old days. But what about now? But I love that phrase that the chains fell off because so many of us understand what it means to be in bondage to something. The chains of depression, the chains of anxiety that whatever I do don't seem to go away. 
the chains of, of an addiction, the chains of, of past mistakes in my life, the chains of a family dysfunction or maybe a, a relationship struggle that is broken and I feel like I've tried everything and nothing seems to work and she's still mad and he's still mad and all these things and it feels like I'm just enslaved to these things and there's never going to be a change. If you ever feel like there's never going to be a change, that's the time for that desperate prayer and we pray those desperate prayers and we call out and God says, ask and seek, ask and seek and knock because your heavenly father hears and sees you. So I want to encourage you to keep lifting up those prayers. In fact, I got just a quick example of this. Someone showed me this in between services. I didn't see this, but uh, in Mississippi, they've been having these terrible, and in the South, these terrible tornadoes. And he showed me a picture of this weatherman. You can Google it when you get home. This weatherman is giving his, his forecast, and he's showing these, the, the kind of advancing weather pattern. And if you watch the video of it, he turns around, and he looks back at the screen, and he sees where this tornado is going. And he says, oh my Let's pray. And in the middle of his weather forecast, he bows his head and he says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on these people. And he offers this prayer in the middle of his weather um, forecast. That's the kind of thing that when you look around and there's nowhere else to turn but to God. And we need to get to that place more often. Yeah, it was awesome. It was great. You got to check the video out. So earnest prayer is a desperate prayer. Second thing about earnest prayer is uh, earnest prayer is not giving up even when I have questions, or even when I doubt. Because we're taught in the book of James, rightfully so, that when we pray, we shouldn't doubt. We should pray with faith. And that's all good, and we want that. But I got a question here for myself, and maybe for you as well. What about the times when I pray, and I do doubt, and I do have questions, right? Well, I think the answer there is you keep on praying. And I think this is one of the powerful things that this passage teaches us. Because look at the doubt or the questions that filled these people, right? First of all, we've mentioned this several times, James had already been killed, which not only made them scared, but this doesn't say it in the text, but if they prayed for Peter, don't you think they prayed for James first? And it didn't work, right? Their prayer wasn't answered for James. And so it would have been really easy to say, oh, Yep, God doesn't do the get them out of jail prayers, right? We tried that and it doesn't work. Even Peter, as he's being let out of the jail, he thinks he's in a dream. He thinks he's having a vision. It just didn't actually occur to him that God was actually doing this miracle and healing and bringing him out of prison. And the best part of it all is when he shows up to, to Mary's house, the servant girl Rhoda answers the door and sees Peter and like just slams the door, doesn't even invite him in, goes and tells the little prayer group that's faithfully and earnestly praying, hey, you guys, Peter's at the door. And what do they say? Go away. We're praying for Peter to get out of prison, right? Leave us alone here. And she's, no, he's, he's there. It says they were astonished that God answered their prayer. And I don't know about you, but that's hopeful to me. Because sometimes when we pray and we struggle with our doubt, my encouragement is to keep on praying. It reminds me so much of the story in Mark chapter 9 when there's the father whose son is possessed by a demon and that brings him to Jesus and, and it says specifically that this child had been tormented for a long time. He'd throw himself in the fire and harm himself and, and he says, Jesus, can you heal? And Jesus says, I, I can. Do you believe that I can? And do you remember this man's answer? He says, I do believe, but just help me to overcome my unbelief. And I just wonder if some of us this week need to begin our prayer Lord, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief because I've been praying for something for a long time 
and I've been waiting to see that change. But are you willing to continue to pray? And are you willing to hear God's word and his specific instructions to us in scripture and to make those changes to see the answer come? And then finally, the third thing we see about earnest prayer is it is directed prayer for God's mission. This has actually been one of the most convicting things to me personally in this little study of Acts is the way the the church has prayed. Because in Acts chapter 1, they set aside 10 days for for prayer. And at the end of 10 days, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and blows through on what we call the day of of Pentecost. And among other things, 3,000 people are saved after the church takes this time to pray. In Acts chapter 4, it's the first time that we see persecution start to rise its head up. And I'm so just convicted by this prayer because their prayer is not God take the the persecution away or make it easy for us or keep us safe. Do you remember their prayer? Their prayer is Lord in this persecution help us to be bold and God stretch out your hand and do signs and wonders so that we can see your greatness and the world can see your greatness. It's a very kingdom-centered prayer. In Acts 13, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, the church in Antioch prays and they're like, we're ready to send out missionaries. God, send us the the person. And and who is it but the Apostle Paul that's raised up and is sent out as like the greatest missionary of all time. And in Acts chapter 12, what we just read, they pray for the release of Peter from Herod's prison. And we don't have time to to look at this. You got to read it on your own. But if you come to the end of chapter 12, here's what you see. Peter is alive and well, and Herod is dead and gone, literally struck dead because of his pride and his blasphemy. And this is the way Acts chapter 12 ends like this. It says, but the word of God, the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. And of course it did, because that's what happens when the church prays. And so as we conclude today, I'm going to ask us to do something just a a little bit um, different. Normally, I offer a a closing prayer. But as we think about being a church that offers earnest prayer, I'm going to ask you in just a minute to kind of turn to some of the the folks around you and and make a group of three, five, seven, whatever it is. And I'm going to ask you to think about two things. Would you pray for our church? Would you pray for God's power among us as a church? And specifically, as we're just now a few weeks away from Easter, Easter is a time when people tend to be spiritually open. And so would you pray specifically for the Easter season here at church? Pray about the things that you want God to do in your life, maybe for someone that you would want to bring to a church service or to something like that um, for Easter. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Turn in groups and in just a little bit, the worship team will kind of come and and they'll kind of close that time and we invite you to stand and sing. But if you would kind of turn to those around you and hopefully it's not too awkward for you, but if at least someone in the group would maybe lead out in prayer. We're going to give you just a few minutes um, to pray for those things, and let's follow the example that we see in Acts of being a church of earnest prayer. Ready, go. Amen. Amen. Well, there is no better place that we can stand and stand together in the power of Christ. So thanks for being here today. I hope you're encouraged. I hope that my prayer is answered, that you and I would become people people of deeper prayer, and that as a church, we would be committed to pray for one another, pray for God's work among us, and stand back and be blown away by what he wants to do. So again, thanks for being here today. Hey, if you were visiting with us, um, we do a little thing called our five-minute party. Um, In my office, there's some fresh-baked cookies, which is just to the left of the fireplace out there. Stop by 
say hello. We'd love to get to know you um, a little bit. Um, and if we can do anything for you as a church, um, don't hesitate to, to reach out as we uh, follow Christ and serve together. But for now, let me dismiss this with a word of prayer. And I'm going to ask God's blessing as we go. God, your people have gathered together. Just as in the, the book of Acts, we have come together to earnestly seek after our good and our loving Father. And so, Father, I pray that you would work. I pray that you would work in each prayer that has been offered up today. I pray that you would work in each place, Lord, each person who has concerns and needs and needs to see your power. And we pray that you would work in in this church family here and around the world, Lord, that your name would be glorified. Make us bold, Lord. Stretch out your hands and do signs and wonders for the glory of our King. And we go now today in the name of the uh, Savior, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great day.